0: Now, I was once told that the Easter sermon has one job, and one job only, and it's announced the good news of the resurrection. So, Christ is risen, the Lord is risen indeed, hallelujah, hallelujah. Okay then. <laughs> Seriously, as, as much as you might like a short sermon, that, I think you'd agree, is a little ridiculous. And it doesn't do justice to all of you here who have navigated an ever-confusing sign-up genius. And grabbed one of the few spots available and made it here this glorious Easter morning. Or if you're at home watching on Facebook Live or YouTube, dressed in your Easter best, it doesn't do you justice either. And it doesn't do justice to the year plus that we haven't been able to meet in person and are finally, finally reopening. And most of all, it doesn't do justice to the wonderful reading from John that we just heard. It's quite possibly my favorite part of John's Gospel, It's filled with such precise details and such visceral movement, and it's deeply, deeply personal. Its characters, especially in the beloved disciple, the one that Jesus loved, and Mary Magdalene, I think reach out to us today as we celebrate the resurrection. They show us what kinds of Christians we can be here some 2,000 plus years after the events depicted. Now you might wonder why our beloved namesake Peter I don't include in that list of Christians and I'll get to that in a minute it's kind of because I think Peter's along for the ride he was a necessary inclusion for the sake of the early church but I believe the beloved disciple and Mary Magdalene deserves center stage now Mary opens the story she comes to the tomb apparently by herself while it's still dark and the other resurrection stories have the women coming to the tomb in early morning when it's light. But John's story begins in darkness. Darkness and light are running themes in the gospel, and Mary's appearing before sunrise might be seen to reflect her and the other disciples' confusion around the empty tomb. They're still in the dark about its meaning. Finding the tomb empty, she runs to Simon Peter and the other disciple with the disturbing news. They've taken Jesus from the tomb, and we do not know where they laid him. This triggers a boys-will-be-boys foot race to get through the tomb first. The beloved disciple gets there first but doesn't enter. Peter enters and sees the linen wrappings and the head covering neatly folded. It's a significant detail, for had the tomb been robbed, which was not uncommon in those days, the valuable linens would have been taken with the body. The beloved disciple then enters the tomb and, we're told, saw and believed. The beloved disciple is unique to John's gospel and suggests at various points that he actually is the author of the gospel. It's made clear his favor with Jesus. He lies at Jesus' breast during the Last Supper, and among the very last words that Jesus uttered were to Mary, his, his mother, and to the beloved disciple, woman, here is your son, here is your mother there's a remarkable love shared between Jesus and the beloved disciple. And this morning it suggests that the disciple bound closest in love to Jesus was the quickest to get to the tomb, and importantly, the first to believe. This is not a competition with Peter, despite the foot race. Peter, the obvious leader of the early church, is there to point us toward the special example of the beloved disciple who sees an empty tomb a stack of clothes, and believes. A beloved community, a community based on the beloved disciple type of Christian, is quick to look for divine love amidst the tragedies of personal setbacks, social injustice, and mounting inequality, even when for most of the world that dream has long ended. That type of Christian is committed to the power of God's love in everything, despite seemingly endless waves of death and destruction. The latest news of mass shootings in Orange, California, Boulder, Colorado, Philadelphia, Atlanta, the brutal attack at the Capitol this week, speak to those waves of death and destruction. This Easter morning, we stand resolute that God is at work and that God's love will triumph. We see an empty tomb, a stack of clothes, and we believe. Now, another kind of Christian is modeled in the person of Mary Magdalene. She's barely mentioned in the Gospels, but is always included in the resurrection story. And nowhere more fully than in John's telling. She stays at the tomb weeping. Even the amazing sight of two angels in the tomb doesn't stop her pain. Woman, why are you weeping? Jesus repeats the question, but she mistakes him for the gardener. She's still in the dark unable to see through her grief. And it takes a single word to bring her into the light. Mary. He calls her by her name. The specific, individual, personal name. And with that, she's seen by Christ and falls to her knees. Rabuni, she says. You see, Mary reflects our deepest desire to be seen by God in all our particulars, in all that we are. In the depths of our internal lives, our bodies, our dreams, our losses, we yearn to be seen. Throughout the Bible, being named by God carries enormous power. Abram to Abraham, Jacob to Israel, Saul to Paul. There's significance to being called by your name. Mary travels straight to the essence of who she is. And in that, Christ is made known to her. Mary shows us the kind of Christian who is called to see God as much in our material lives as in our spiritual ones, especially as we come together virtually or in real life this Easter morning. Jesus is calling us through our senses, the sights, sounds, smells, and feels that surround us this very moment. Jesus is calling us. And in this gathering, we emerge rejuvenated, Not just intellectually, but physically. Our bodies are reminded of the glory. Our anxieties relieved. The earth again shifts this Easter morning like it does every year. But there's a responsibility that comes with this calling by name, by Christ. By the Good Shepherd uttering our name. You see, we need to call names. We need to call the names of those affected by greed, by injustice, by violence, by hatred. We are emboldened by Christ's divine presence, by God in the world, and called to name where darkness persists, so it, like Mary, can receive the light. 20th century African-American writer James Baldwin published a series of essays in 1961 called, interestingly, Nobody Knows My Name. The essays speak to the African-American experience of not exactly not having a name, but at the invisibility that comes with not having one's name known and called. Last summer's Black Lives Matters marches around the world featured posters and chants of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others with a call to say their name. Mary's naming reminds us to name systemic sin and its purveyors as well as its victims so light can shine and darkness disappear. The beloved disciple reminds us to see God's love in spite of all the evidence to the contrary, in the darkness and destruction. God's love is so powerful that we can look into an empty tomb, see see a stack of clothes, and believe. And Mary Magdalene shows us the power and intimacy of being called our name. It's deep inside. It's what we long for. It's what we were made for. God knows us from inside the womb and we yearn for God to call our name. And then we are called to name the ways in which we're falling short of God's love, of God's calling. And our personal failing, our communal misgivings, our societal shortfalls. There's power in that naming with its ability to bring light to the darkness. As happens every Easter, the earth has shifted. There's a light that's broken through the darkness. There's good news in the resurrection. Christ has risen. The Lord has risen indeed. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen.